0: Welcome to the FAIR Podcast. The Foundation for Apologetic Information and Research is a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing well documented answers to criticisms of LDS doctrine, belief, and practice. To learn more about FAIR or to make donations, visit fairlds.org. I'm Blair Hodges, host of the FAIR Podcast, and you're listening to part two of my interview with John Durham Peters, who's one of America's leading thinkers in the subject of communications. By way of correction, in Part 1 of this interview, I mentioned Wilfred Woodruff's testimonies having been recorded in 1898. The correct date is actually March 19th, 1897. In this episode, we cover a lot of ground, beginning with a discussion about John's book Courting the Abyss, Free Speech and the Liberal Tradition.
1: Paul is such a great theorist of free speech because he says, look, we can think anything we want, but let's be careful about if it hurts our neighbor.
0: The book focuses not only on what can be spoken, but who can speak.
1: If you really want to see ideas flourish in a genuine democracy, you need to think about the inarticulate, the people who can't speak, the people who are silenced and deafened.
0: Peters describes how different models of communication help him get through occasionally boring church meetings.
1: Dissemination is such a more fruitful model for thinking about how communication works. I go to church, I'll hear 10,000 words every Sunday maybe, and I'll get one or two ideas that'll be really helpful for me that day, and that's fine. Not everything that hits me in church needs to be profound. I'm a high priest. I sleep in sacraments sometimes. And that's, that's one of the blessings. Why should we have this ridiculously overwrought conception of communication? Just impractical.
0: He also describes why he situates mercy at the very heart of his theory of
1: communication. I mean, the issue of communication is how do people live together. And the way that they live together is to figure out how to reconcile love and justice. And mercy, for me, is the common element.
0: All this and more in the final part of my interview with John Durham Peters. I want to uh, move to the to the to the concept of courting the abyss. Uh, you wrote this book. Uh, what year did this come out?
1: Two thousand and five.
0: And it's about freedom of speech in the United States. You talk about court rulings. You talk about social science. Um, you talk about uh, you talk about witnessing there as well. Um, how did how did this book come about?
1: Um, how did that book come about? Well, I mean, I've been working for a long time on notions of. of of the public sphere which is a, a concept which kind of gained in translation from the German philosopher uh, Jürgen Habermas. In Germany the word is öffentlichkeit, which means like publicity or openness, um, but in English it turns into this whole elaborate sociological concept uh, the public sphere. And the basic question there is how does a democratic society create a space in which all voices um, can be heard? And um, the basic point of, of uh, courting the abyss is that there's a fundamental irony in the argument that all voices should be heard because the people who make an, the argument that all voices uh, can be heard are actually those who have um, a particular relation to uh, public uh, debate. And it's actually a privilege to be able to argue that um, that speech doesn't hurt. People in positions of security are more likely to be able to argue for this kind of open-ended uh, debate culture. People in, in positions of economic insecurity or people who are radical critics of modernity and of debate itself don't have a voice. So there's this kind of funny self-defeating irony in the uh, liberal view of, of a completely wide-open forum in which anything would go because only things that are not permitted – in this wide open forum, are ideas such as not everything should be permitted.
0: There was some response yep. to that uh, to that book where people, uh, some people believed you were tra- basically ad- maybe advocating against free speech, and, and you had to make uh, you had to make it clear. And I think you did in the book as well. But you had to make it clear that, that that's not really what you were aiming at, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm interested in, in the kind of ethical byproduct, I mean, the ethical bonus. smugness. I mean, the the book's a diagnosis of smugness that certain liberals have about having figured out the right way to run the public sphere in which people of deep religious uh, convictions, people who think that, you know, there's maybe something dangerous about modernity or something dangerous about the idea that everything should be aired. These people don't have a chance to stand on an equal playing field with the the liberals. And so the idea that this so-called open debate is actually rigged in favor of ideas which are more secular and more rational, um, is, is something which I suggest that a radical liberal, which I would want to say that I am in the spirit of a John Milton or a, or a St. Paul, you know, someone who, who really takes this stuff seriously, that I mean, if you really want to see ideas flourish and a genuine democracy, you need to think about the inarticulate, the people who can't speak, the people who are silenced and, and, and deafened. Um, who don't have access to the to, to the moral or political resources that uh, that the free speech advocates think everybody has?
0: You've talked about in in line with this uh, the idea that it's profitable to descend into the abyss for a time, to spend a season in hell, so to speak. And you trace a lineage of people who held to that, and which includes John Milton and includes writers like Dostoevsky. What are they getting at there? What what is this uh, dealing with dangerous doctrines and coming out the better for it?
1: You know, isn't this, isn't this the funnel, fundamental narrative of the plan of salvation, that, you know, the fall was fortunate, that we had to taste sin, that we had to be in a world of, of opposition? I mean, if, if you think of a kind of model of what the free speech world is supposed to be like, it's one of opposition in all things, where you've got pleasure and pain and health and sickness, and these things are yanking you both ways, and that you, thanks to your agency, have the opportunity to, to try to figure out how you're going to flourish. Um, in, this, in this mess. So it seems to me that the plan of salvation gives us a, a really deep understanding of you know, life as, as a real contest, a real opposition between wheat, wheat and tares. But it also gives us a, um, a robust sense of, of the danger of falling off the deep end, which is, which is why we have the atonement. The plan of salvation is not simply that we're supposed to fall into the abyss, it's supposed, we're supposed to be able to get out of there. And we're supposed to help others get out of there, which is why we need to you know, care for our neighbors, which is why I think Paul is such a great theorist of free speech because he says, look, we can think anything we want, but let's be careful about if it hurts our neighbor.
0: Yeah, and that, that's that's also what, I, what I'd like to ask you about then is that the uh, there's the idea that, for example, discussions of church history in a church meeting don't get into the warts and all kind of approach. Um, and, and that that can, uh, that can leave people later on to go online and find some information and, and feel like that, uh, that they've been misled or that they haven't been given the whole story. And it seems to me that church lessons are usually geared to say, you know, how can we apply this to our lives today? And, yeah. and as a result, sometimes don't you miss that kind of abyss descending or, or is it better to do that?
1: Uh, that's a real tricky one. I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a gospel doctrine teacher and I, I'm, I, am i I think about this um, a lot, but I think church culture could probably benefit a little more from the inoculation metaphor. I and mean, that's what I see someone like Richard Bushman doing in his biography of, of Joseph Smith, is that showing us how you can understand Joseph Smith as a prophet and yet understand him in the context of his times and in the context of his personal weaknesses. I know that that book shocks some people, but the whole point of inoculation is you get a little bit of the poison. So that you build up your immunity, and I think if we did this more, people would be less prone to get blown away by one little whiff of, of historical fact. You know, I think we should be more, a little more robust and a little more seasoned or calloused. I don't know if that's the uh, right word, but you know, history bats you around, beats you up a little bit, and you know, it also toughens you up. And you know, having that culture in the church, I'm not sure how we're going to do it, but um, I think i think the church is great people should be committed to it and that you you lose a lot when you abandon it i don't want lousy thinking about history to be something that drives people away i'm going to take milton
0: for an example or perhaps this quote and this is from speaking into the air you list this quote let truth and falsehood grapple whoever knew truth put to the worse in a free and open encounter the idea is that truth will always win out and you, you nuance that, right? You're saying, well, yeah. what's the intellectual history behind the idea that truth hey, truth is just going to win out all the time? And then how would you nuance that?
1: Yeah, well, I, I, think, I think that John Stuart Mill has it, has it right rather than uh, Milton. And as I, I talk about this in, in uh, According to the Abyss, that Milton's metaphor is grappling. In other words, it's an undefeated wrestler. Truth never loses a match. Um, Mill's understanding of truth is much more of a batting average. And he's, he's got you know, great pages in which he talks about the uh, Protestant uh, Reformation, which he thinks is, is a very good thing. And he shows over and over again how you have sort of forerunners of the Protestant Reformation that just got wiped out right and left across uh, European history. And so yeah, truth doesn't always win out. It's, uh, it's a batting average. It gets on base more often, but you know, it strikes out sometimes.
0: The question is, and you brought up Paul, how Paul said, what is the scripture where he talks about, uh, is he talking about food? He's talking about eating food?
1: Yeah, eating meat sacrificed to idols. It's in First Corinthians.
0: You put that into this discussion about communication.
1: Well, here's the deal. So you're living in, in, in Corinth. Only the upper classes eat meat. The lower classes eat meat only at these public sacrifices to the uh, local pagan deities. So you, you, you have fresh converts of tender mind who when they eat the meat think they're worshiping the uh, pagan deities paul says we know pagan deities are nothing you know so i mean they don't really exist so if you can eat the meat understanding that these pagan deities are nothing and get a little protein in your diet then cool but if you eat the meat and you feel like you're worshiping pagan deities then you shouldn't do it because this is a temptation to uh, revert to your former self but the uh, tricky thing is is of course that the enlightened who know that it isn't really idolatry should not eat the meat if they're going to be in the presence of someone who is going to see that as an endorsement of idol worship. So that the enlightened liberal, according to Paul, has the obligation to care for the less enlightened neighbor and to protect them in their own process of education. And so I mean this is I mean this is the other uh, other argument as how we handle history uh, in church not everybody's at the same level and so you, you try to teach parable the sower style so that people hear things at different levels and hopefully the spirit is teaching them what they need to hear anyway
0: you said you're a gospel doctrine teacher right now or is yeah. that and, yeah. and you've been a bishop if i remember correctly
1: branch president
0: branch, okay a branch president a s-
1: singles branch yeah
0: given that you've you've had those sort of callings you're also a professor at a university so how do you uh, how do you integrate those two roles do you do you sense any sort of disconnect between them and if so or if not kind of go into that a little bit the role of, of an intellectual
1: well um I, I like richard bushman's phrase i mean which which i'll just steal I, i'm a scholar among believers and a believer among scholars and so i actually don't feel a lot of uh, discontinuity um I find that, actually, as, as a professor working with students and as a branch president, that, that the questions that really bother people are not theoretical ones. Um, they're always moral ones. They're about what should I do, who am I, how do I behave, why did I behave like, like, like I did, how can I stop behaving like I did. I mean, these are the questions which grad students have and which people in a, as, a singles branch have. I mean, ultimately, I think questions of doctrine come down to questions of, of conduct how you believe follows from how you act. And it, it's a much more fundamental and much more difficult um, question. And when I teach, I, mean, I, I think that my teaching is, is pretty much the you know, same stuff. It's about how do we live, how do we act, how do we think, how do we believe. And I always tell my students I'm Latter-day Saint, and they always know it. And I'll drop in, you know, my, I've got a PowerPoint about the Salt Lake Temple, and I talk about that I was married there, and I talk about rituals and time and space. And, you know, the students get it, and they understand it, and... If they get a sense that I'm a believing Latter-day Saint in the process, then uh, great, but you know, of course I, I'm not preaching. Um, anyway, I don't know if, if that helps or not.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think it does. Um, I think the problem for some people that, that I've spoken with is that when they're sitting in a Sunday school lesson that just doesn't seem... Say they're just reading from the manual or something. What do you do in that sort of a situation? If it's, not, it's not your week to teach and you're sitting just listening to the manual being read, how do you how do you come out of that sort of a Sunday school class feeling like you spent time well spent?
1: Yeah, well, it goes back to your question about prayer. I mean, you go to church to produce, not to receive. You go to church to serve, not to be served. So if the teacher's not doing it for you, then you do it for yourself. You know, I've got an Episcopalian colleague who, you know, I've gone to church with him a couple times, and the singing is gorgeous, the preaching is eloquent. And he says is that the I mean, he's kind of joking. He says your your church is just too much work. You, you have to do so much stuff for yourself because you know if the sacrament speaker is boring or the teacher is lousy, you feel obligated to you know to do all that spiritual work on your own. And, and we do so if the teacher is just reading from the manual, then you either try to give good comments, and if they're not looking for comments, then you you open the scriptures to what they're studying and you re- read them and I mean, you figure out something more interesting or more profound on your own.
0: I want to talk about a chapter in the book where you mentioned homeopathic uh, machismo. Is that how you pronounce it?
1: Machismo, I would say, yeah. This is kind of a tweaking those who, who who celebrate freedom of speech as this great toughener. A homeopathic cure is the idea of eating poison in order not to be poisoned. So it's being cured by the disease. So in, in a sense, it's connected to inoculation. So I like the procedure of inoculation, but I don't like the idea of kind of celebrating your public toughness by saying look how tough i am by defending this uh, outrageous culture i see this sometimes among defenders of uh, pornography that you know without really talking about the content they say it's not a question of content it's a question of principle But all the while they're defending something which is potentially really damaging i think we should be more pragmatic and talk about effects of speech instead of just kind of celebrating its ability to kind of inoculate everybody in a kind of macho way
0: I don't know. Right now, there seems to be less weight behind arguing for responsibility to the other. It seems if look, this is the way it is. So if they can't handle it, then you know that's their problem.
1: Yeah. Well, I think you're saying we don't live in a time of particularly civil political discourse. Uh, <laughs> I mean, with Aqua Buddha to whatever. I mean, this is this is this is not a particularly exemplary moment of of in American political history of uh, of, of dignified discourse. True. Um, I don't know. I mean, perhaps some of that is, is amplified by the, by the blog world and, and by the habits of online communication, which you don't have the check of, of the nonverbal, of, of, of the face-to-face, where people can just spew in ways that they wouldn't be talking if, if they were actually talking to other human beings. And I think that spills over into um, political ads. And in campaigns, this sort of sense of abstraction, and just being able to rail at these evil abstractions. You know, people score points by railing at abstractions, but it doesn't really accomplish very much, and it isn't really very grounded in what the real issues are.
0: What's uh, What's behind that sort of? It's there's this, like you mentioned, the political discourse right now, and, and it does come from both sides. You've got you've got Absolutely. common you've got commentators from several directions who are taking this bombastic approach. I don't think that's something new, though, is
1: it? That- no, no. I mean, um, demagoguery is. Is, is, is as old as, as democratic life. When I, when I taught in Athens, I was sitting in it uh, with my colleague, Peter Green. He's actually m- my neighbor, a very distinguished historian of, of, of ancient Greece. And my son Daniel there was like 12 and really enthusiastic about what he'd been learning in his school in Greece. And he said, the Greeks invented democracy. And Peter said, yeah, they also invented dictatorship and demagoguery. <laughs> a nice little sort of salty point about how, you know, you know democracy has always gone together with efforts to mislead, I basically think that outrage is a really destructive you know, attitude. And that it's, it's so easy for people to get stirred up into outrage about pure abstractions. You know, I mean, you say 9-11 mosque, you know, it's like building a Japanese culture memorial at Pearl Harbor. And because the dead are involved, it just kind of pushes everybody's button. But Do you think that's a comparable
0: a- situation? <laughs> Do you think that's comparable to say, you know, it's just like that?
1: No, I I I think that's ridiculous.
0: In one of in, uh, in speaking into the air, you talk about the Danish cartoon controversy when when people were making uh, that you know it was a big deal, and and you're saying, uh, yeah, there there re, there was a huge overreaction. You don't advocate riots and and threaten you know death threats in the face of such a thing, but you also don't say, uh, hey, we're you shouldn't take such offense at that, right? Is that yeah? Well, I mean, I it, I
1: actually. Um, The Danish cartoon controversy was actually later than than either of the books, but um, I I have written about it in in, in other articles. Um, Yeah, I do think people should not take that kind of outraged um, offense, but if you look closely at the Danish cartoon scandal, what actually outraged people was the policy of the Danish state, which was very conservative and very anti-immigrant, and a, a kari Laban dossier, which was assembled by outraged Danish imams, not just of the twelve cartoons but of much more inflammatory stuff, which they then uh, circulated through the uh, Middle East and said, "This is what these europeans are, are are doing to us I think I mean I believe in an educated public and and in a reasonable public, and I think that education is a good cure against demagoguery I mean yeah I'm sounding like the professor that I am it doesn't always work. <laughs> people i mean outrage is so easy and 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 the moral trap about outrage is that it's so self-flattering because when you feel outrage you feel morally in the right and when you feel morally in the right you're not interested in, in learning from the other side this is the reason why i thought bush's mobilization of the kind of evil trope or, you know, this rhetoric of evil is so dangerous, because evil does not admit of degrees. I mean, it's this theological absolute. I mean, you don't mess with evil. I mean, you don't negotiate with evil. You just avoid it. And so if something's evil, you have a way of completely coordinating it off or quarantining it off so you don't have to learn from it. And. People aren't evil. Ideas aren't evil. I mean, it's, it's a lot more fluid and a lot more uh, complicated. And, you know, when you talk to the people who want to build a mosque, why aren't we celebrating them as all-American success stories of, of, of immigrants, of multiculturalism, and freedom of speech? And, you know, we Mormons should be celebrating this stuff because, you know, we were considered Muslims throughout the 19th century because of our word of wisdom, because of polygamy, because of our utopian uh, social vision. You know that you know we've suffered the same fate as, as Muslims. We ought to be defending them instead of uh, demonizing them.
0: Yeah, I want to. I, I also wanted to, uh, kind of in line with this, to bring up not not only this sort of rhetoric between Americans, but there's also some push and pull within the church itself. Um, suppose you're you're watching general conference, or or you're listening to a speaker at church who says something that, that you really disagree with. And in the the church isn't a democracy, so it's not like we can vote so so uh, how do you reconcile that we we've grown up both of us have grown up in America, so we have this probably stronger sense of of uh, being able to participate and being able to vote and, and that sort of thing. How do you reconcile that w- with your church membership when it's a more of a culture of sustaining and, and supporting rather than uh, voting and, and that sort of thing?
1: Well, um, there are all kinds of strategies for dealing with it. I mean for one thing general conference never speaks with just one voice um, people in sacrament meeting never speak with uh, one voice I mean people say the craziest things in church I mean heck I'm sure I say the craziest things um, in church and so this is why we need love and toleration I mean ultimately I'm responsible to God for what I believe and if if someone says something that I don't agree with or I don't I don't believe is right then I don't feel like i have to take it up with them i um i i take it up with god and um he's willing to he's willing to negotiate i think all kinds of things in our in our private heads about how we how how we make certain things work
0: you you've written a few articles you uh you did an interview with dialogue you've written an our i th- one article in b y u studies um and i believe you've participated in at least one uh sunstone symposium um yeah more than that but yeah how do you decide what to, uh, what to write about? It seems that uh, two of them that I've seen were related to the atonement.
1: The the atonement's a rich topic because it's at, at the center of everything, but it also involves really interesting ideas uh, about communication, about transaction um, between people. In, you know, an atonement in some way is, a, is a, to enter into communication with Christ himself and figure out what that means for you. And so that I, I guess topics that I get from church I bring in, into work, and topics that I get from work I bring into church, and it's all a big jumble.
0: One of your papers on the atonement specifically is a really good example of how uh, people should expect the unexpected uh, when you approach a topic. You wrote an article for BYU Studies about the atonement and and bowels. Um Give me some give me some background on that article.
1: Too. You know the uh, climactic verse of of Amulek's sermon on the atonement, Alma thirty four fifteen talks about uh, the bowels of mercy, and the Book of Mormon talks a lot about bowels of, of mercy. Let thy bowels be full of charity, says Joseph Smith at a climactic moment in this letter from uh, Liberty Jail. You know why is this why is this imagery so so pervasive? Or as I put it in, in the um, piece, I think, what do the viscera have to do with virtue? And, and the argument, of course, is that something fleshy material, even gross, like the bowels, can be a, a really rich source of, of, of religious insight, and in some ways sort of enact the very problem of our mortality. That is, we are creatures with bowels, and that Christ himself put upon bowels when he, um, he became a, a, a human being. You know, a half human being, a demi human, whatever we want to call him.
0: Talk a little bit about that. About, I mean.
1: Well, I mean, I mean, I don't know. My my father was a doctor. I was always interested in in the body, including sort of gory medical stories. Um, so maybe there's a there's a kind of naughty side to uh, to this. But you know, there is no word for compassion in the New Testament. Um, in the Greek, if if you look at the Greek, the word is splunknistomai. Um, which means to be bowled, um, essentially. I mean, to have your inner parts move um, in response to the vision of uh, someone else. So the parable of of, of the uh, good Samaritan, you know, he had compassion on him; his bowels moved. And so, what does it mean that we are more sanitized in our approach to the um, atonement? What would happen if we were took a, a gutsy, you know, literally more more gutsy uh, approach? I think it's a, a much more powerful way to kind of. You know, hit, hit, I mean, I guess this is also an argument for courting courting the abyss. You know, look at look at the cast off part, look at the stinky, smelly, slimy part of our, our bodies, and realize that the night soil is part of the mortal experience, as Levi Peterson would say.
0: Okay. There's a, there's a quote that you gave in the dialogue interview where you talk about the Book of Mormon, um, and you mentioned that is the Book of Mormon true or false? That's a, a bad dichotomy to make. And that stuck out to me in, when Elder Nelson, in his general conference talks, uh, or maybe it was in priesthood session, where he said, the Book of Mormon is not history, and it's not fiction. What do you think he meant by that, and, and what did you mean between the, by disagreeing with the true or false dichotomy?
1: Let's see. Um, I don't remember that point from uh, from, from Elder Nelson, so I, um, I can't comment on it. The idea of a documental documentable history is something presumably that, well, it is something that is fairly modern. We should be thinking about, what does this book mean for my life? There's a lot of things I like um, about the Book of Mormon. I wish it had more women in it. Um, but I, I think it's, you know, it's testimony of Christ, you know, Alma's teaching about the seed, you know, Lehi's vision of the tree of life. I mean, that's just, yeah, wonderful stuff.
0: Yeah, when you talked about Jesus in the parable of the sower, it, it also... I, when I read the book, I didn't know that you were a, a Mormon, and so when you were, when I was, as I was reading that chapter, my mind instantly went to, uh, I think it's Alma 32, where they're talking about uh, the Word and uh, being like a seed. Did that inform your uh, oh, take sure on that at all?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I I think Alma 32 is um, pragmatist uh, epistemology. It's it's where um, you look at its fruits. I mean, this is – I mean, William James must have co-written Alma 32 and being silly, um, of course. But there's a certain kind of resonance of, of, of James's argument that uh, if you want to know if something's true, you attest its truth. I and mean, you, you test its fruits in your experience. And that, I think, is, is the same thing that, that Alma's saying.
0: Yeah, and, and I'm glad you brought up uh, that point from William James. Kind of bring it back full circle back to the, just the basic idea of communication. In, in, in the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, the Word was with God, and, and so forth. And there's been a sense that, that words are, are, you use the word proxy. You say words are, are thought to be proxies of our own in, innards. Uh, they're signs, uh, they're kind of like bodies that contain spirit. Do, do you think that's a good way to, to conceive of, of words, or do you think that there's a problem with that conception of, of words?
1: No, I, um, I definitely think there's a, there's a problem with that conception. I, I, I mean to be setting up a, a straw person, a straw figure that I don't uh, agree with. Because I don't I mean it. Words are, are sounds and they're systems. And how words mean is, is one of the fundamental problems that I would, I would like to figure out. Words don't carry around little cargo, which that they then offload into somebody's eardrum when they land there. I mean, words are things, they're pragmata, as the ancient Greeks would say. I mean, they're things in the world, they're, they're affairs.
0: It's a puzzle to you, because there's some there's some ambiguity there, and there's some sense of unsureness about origins, and, and perhaps about you know original intent or meaning, and it's the same when, when we're talking to somebody over Skype or something. Yeah,
1: imagine that. But we, we don't have to know what they really meant in order to have a good conversation. I've got a colleague who says that the majority of human communication consists of misunderstanding. And I mean, what she means is that if your standard of successful communication is people replicating their mental content with each other, then all communication is a uh, is spectacular failure. But, you know, what do we—I mean, dissemination is such a more fruitful model for thinking about how communication works. I mean, I go to church. I'll hear 10,000 words every Sunday maybe— and I'll get one or two ideas that'll be really helpful for me that day or that week, and that's fine. Not everything that hits me in church needs to be uh, profound or even registered. I mean, I'd, I'm a high priest. I sleep in sacraments sometimes, and that's that's one of the blessings. I'm you know why why should we have this? ridiculously overwrought conception of communication, just impractical.
0: That's uh, an interesting way to look at it. You, you bring up a, an experience that William James had with a demonstration that involved, involved a, a frog heart, and you kind of use this as a parable writ large on, on the concept of communication. Can you, can you tell me what the frog heart incident was about?
1: I, I think it was actually um, at, at a turtle heart that he was, uh, James was assisting a, a professor as a, I guess he was a grad student at, at a lecture, and there's some kind of primitive slide projection in which the professor was showing, I guess, I can't remember the story, the electrophysiological nature of, of cardiac tissue. But the turtle heart stopped beating. And so James figured out you know, the Everett, the uh, dutiful as, um, assistant, without his finger showing to make the heart beat. Um, so it looked like it was still beating for the uh, uh, projection. And so, I mean, my argument is, is that James is doing a service to the people there and a service to the, to the uh, presenter, to teach them the nature of electrophysiology rather than that James was being fraudulent by saying, oh, the heart, heart doesn't really beat. This, uh, you know, What, what would what'd be the point of uh, debunking the whole thing? The lecture would lose it, it's, its rhythm. The aesthetics of the experience would be wrecked. The professor would be embarrassed. The people would feel short-chained. So why should we be so picky about uncovering uh, potential little little frauds you know, which is what I think a, a lot of you know debunking anti-mormons do. They're so eager to kind of expose the scandalous little fraudulent things in which they're human things I mean humans are just scandalous animals I mean we just um, we're always messing up I mean, we should just get used to the idea that if there's a human being there's error. Emerson has this great line that you know when the, um, when the second person enters the room hypocrisy arises. And, you know, and what he means is, you know, hypocrisy performing for another just built into the nature of a humanity. So why should we go around exposing uh, hypocrisy? I mean, obviously there's egregious hypocrisy that ought to be exposed, but sort of garden variety, ordinary vices. We should have a little more mercy, is my opinion.
0: Yeah, you. in fact, I was going to say, you, you make mercy the crux of communication. You, It's the hub of the wheel, I think, in, in your in your final chapter see but how did you how did you come upon that I, I don't it, it seems a strange solution
1: why it's I, mean, I, I should say perhaps I, an
0: unexpected one because we just you know I talk to my wife and she talks to me and and you know most of the time it's it's not particularly deep conversation, but sometimes it is. And that's the end of the story. But you're saying that with communication, there's so much more to it that literally that an element of mercy needs to be introduced there or perhaps is already there in disguise without it, without us knowing about it yeah. in order to make right. it work.
1: Yeah. Well, um, how about if when you misunderstand so, so, somebody else or when someone is not clear or when they miscommunicate or when the communication... F- seems to fail, that's, that's when mercy um, is needed. Or let me actually back up. The central argument of speaking into the air is that communication is a political and ethical problem before it's a semantic or an informational problem. And communication, I mean the issue of communication is how do people live together. And the way that they live together is to figure out how to reconcile love and justice. And mercy for me is is the common element of uh, love and justice. I guess, you know, the Bowels of Mercy essay was actually published the same year as, as speaking into the air, so that there may be some kind of phantom uh, correspondence there. The guts of communication is, well, it's guts. It, it's kindness. It's having your bowels moved.
0: I think if Mormons read through your books, once in a while you'll say, you know, those who have ears to hear will, uh, will, will catch a little bit more. And, and that's certainly the case. When you're wrapping up your conclusion, it's almost like you introduced the Mormon concept of Zion. Uh,
1: oh, yeah. Totally. You, Absolutely.
0: You say what that— What did I
1: call it, Beloved community or something? Or, peaceable, got, peaceable kingdom. kingdom, think, kingdom. Yeah, peaceable kingdom. Peaceable kingdom,
0: yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Or, and you even bring up the idea of service. Uh, it's a peaceful kingdom where, where people are, are serving one another. And it's almost just a, a, a pragmatic m- making do. Do you, do you consider yourself a pragmatist when it comes oh, to— Oh,
1: Totally. Yeah, I'm, oh, absolutely. I'm I'm a transcendental pragmatist. Um, what
0: what do you mean by that?
1: I mean that in in the lineage of, of Emerson and Peirce and James more than uh, Dewey or or Mead that I'm a pragmatist that has room for the for God. How, how, how about that? Um, I don't think that Dewey or, or Mead have room for God. That God is a kind of byproduct of uh, communal life.
0: Well, it's almost like uh, the concept of God's would be a little bit different. Would, would you think? The way they would describe God might be different from a, a Mormon view of God. A Mormon view of God may be a pragmatic God.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, and Sterling McMurrin is, was not the first to point out that William James's God in his last lecture of his lectures on pragmatism is a very Mormon God who is finite and who is coping with the suffering and evil down there, working shoulder to shoulder with everybody else. That's an answer to the problem of, of suffering, Mormon finitism. I think it's a it's it's wonderful.
0: And this is how I see your, your idea of communication coming together with your idea of God, your idea of humanity, your idea of atonement. It does seem pretty shot through with, with a making do and the idea of mercy. Um, yeah. Where would you put justice on the scale?
1: Well, justice and love profoundly uh, need each other. Because, I mean, real justice is very personal. A good judge looks at the specifics of the case just doesn't in, uh, invoke law. Just like love is sometimes impersonal because, you know, it doesn't matter what your child or spouse does. I mean, you're totally indifferent to the specificities of their being. I mean, if they were to lose a limb or something or to lose their mind or lose their memory, I mean, you would still love them. Um, So in some sense, love is love is like justice in the sense that it's abstract. And justice is like love in the sense that it's very concrete and and personal and and contextual.
0: It's easy to have mercy for somebody that I agree with. So in communication, and especially in the way that we interact with other people, be it in religion or politics or in an argument with a family member, how would your concept of communication as as having such a large gap inform a situation where someone just radically disagrees?
1: Yeah, well, thanks. I mean, I, I realize I gave a lousy answer um, about justice, because I was just sticking to the kind of an interpersonal level. We need justice because we need procedures, and we need institutions. We need states, we need communities, we need municipalities, we need courts um, to sort out uh, disputes and conflicts. Conflicts are real, political, economic, religious, you name it. There There are disputes all over the place. And I mean, I am influenced by Habermas, and I think that his idea on procedural fairness, um, a kind of the indifference of the law with respect to religion or to gender or to ability or whatever other axis of human difference you want to look at, that this is really essential for any kind of uh, fair society. And that's one reason why I don't think I'm ultimately, I mean, for the duration I'm a Democrat, but in the long run I'm, I'm a theocrat because I believe that a just judge is what we all really need.
0: There's one related question to that that I want to ask um you talk you talk about speaking into the air, and uh right now it seems like there are more possibilities to do that than ever We've got the internet t v radio cell phones, text messaging twitter, and it just seems like a cacophony of uh <laughs> of yeah. noise
1: yeah, well, there are so many voices, so many kinds of voices in the world, says Paul right um and, you know the cacophony is isn't particularly cacophony whatever I don't know how to pronounce it either. I don't either. It's, <laughs> Is, is, is not um, particularly new I don't know how, how do we sort it out Google um, <laughs> I mean we have we have search engines I mean the internet explodes and you have a kind of compensatory device of you know we don't have a, a Dewey decimal system that's going to organize you know the internet you know by shelves and by topics so you have Google spiders that go out and build their little simulation of the web that they can then then search so every explosion has its own Compensation. I mean, so there, there's all kinds of aggregation uh, devices and editors and bloggers and people whose job is to uh, synthesize. Professors. I mean, the work of intellectual synthesis is part of the explosion. And there's lots of people who, who do this for for a living and do it for fun.
0: The church seems to want to again make make use of this. You know, there's a YouTube channel. They have you know yep. websites.
1: Yep. I think. Elder Ballard's suggestion is very much a, a grassroots thing. You know, he wants to let a thousand flowers bloom, and he's, he's trusting members to figure it out for themselves, and he's, he's not feeding them all with a kind of, you know, like in the old days where he had to memorize the uh, discussions. And so under the guise of interpersonal contact, you actually have this kind of mass-centralized message. You know, I heard him saying, you figure out how you want to communicate and get the message out, and you go do it. And so I, I mean, I actually like, you know, that that sort of openness
0: I, I want to ask you about anything that you're working on right now, um, or, or any what have you got going right now? Are you, are you writing anything? Or
1: um, I think I'm going to be in Israel over Christmas, uh, because that's where my son is with, with his family. And I think I'm going to teach a course on techniques and civilization. And so I'm, I'm interested in sort of these fundamental media of, of social organization, like writing, counting, clocks, towers, voices, And temples, and um, I think there's probably surely an LDS uh, connection there, because, again, with our very rich media culture, you know, we're interested in in very fundamental basic media. Like Brigham Young's cane, I think, is a a great little medium. He plops it down and says, here we shall build um, a temple to our God, and ever after, everyone... Whoever goes, anyone who ever goes to Salt Lake is oriented towards Brigham Young's cane, toward the uh, the uh, temple, because the grid is, is laid out that, that way. That kind of fundamental organizing uh, work of, of media. I, th- I think Mormon media history is really fascinating, and that Brigham Young is one of the great media developers of, of the American West, and that there's a great story to be told about, you know, obviously about newspapers and communication and transport, but also in a, in a kind of deeper sense, just the sort of Invention of a uh, community and collaborations and you know social experimentation as forms forms of community and communication in Mormon history. Um, I I mean I would just add that you know I had a the really wonderful experience um, recently of rereading Parley P Pratt's Intelligence and Affection and which I hadn't read since I was a teenager and if I mean, if, if there's anything I mean what a beautiful just mm-hmm. vision. Yeah, that, I just read that, it this that, summer. That, yeah, it's just one one of the best things ever, and it really deserves a, a higher spot in our in our canon. So there's there's uh, suggestions for further reading to the great Elias blogosphere. It's it's online on, on the Harold B. Lee Library.
0: Cool. All right, John, um, thanks for thanks for taking the time to join us here at the Fair Podcast.
1: It's been a delight. Thank yeah. you for your interest.
0: Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks again for listening to the FAIR Podcast. As a companion to this episode, I put together a collection of Mormon-themed articles and Sunstone Symposium MP3s by John Durham Peters at my own website, LifeOnGoldBlades.com. You can find a link to this collection at fairblog.org. Send me your questions or comments on this episode by emailing podcast at fairlds.org. If you've enjoyed this or any of our previous episodes, be sure to pass them along to your friends.